a new book. We're going to a new book. In fact, these new books are going to start coming thick and fast. <laughs> We've had some pretty long books, Isaiah being, I think, the biggest of, of the bunch. We're finishing the last book in what group? Major prophets. Yeah, why are they called major prophets? <laughs> That's all it is. Books are bigger. Um, except for Lamentations. But, but Lamentations is sort of a postscript to Jeremiah. Um, and, then, and then the next shortest would, would be the book of Daniel that we're doing now. But, all, but it's bigger than all of each of the minor prophets. In fact, I, I added up the pages. If you add up this entire set of 12 minor prophets, they're shorter than the single book of Isaiah. <laughs> and by the end of March, assuming we don't have any snowstorms or anything, we will be done with all the minor prophets even. So, um, now the book of Daniel is is much more familiar book, I'm sure, than Ezekiel. Um, at least the first half of the book. Uh, let me see here. Um this is the chart that Mansi put together, and you can see how um, we're, the, there's three books he's got here that were written during the captivity: Daniel, Ezekiel, well, yeah, Daniel, Ezekiel, and Lamentations. Um, and they don't talk about each other at all, as far as um, uh, as far as each of them is concerned. They're they're the only ones. Um, Although I think in the book of Ezekiel it may have mentioned Daniel once. But um, Daniel certainly doesn't talk about Ezekiel. And we talked about how there were three deportations to, to Babylon, three major ones. Um, and Daniel goes with the first one. And from, from the first one to the last one is, uh, I think it's 21 years. Quite a, quite a period of time. But he never mentions the others. Um, the whole book goes along just just with Daniel and the guys that were taken along with him. Um, and, and he was he had a very different life than what Ezekiel and the others had because he was brought into the king's service. The others were just ordinary common slaves. And they're all slaves. Daniel's a slave and all that. But the others were just kind of labor slaves. He was a scholar slave. And on the map, um, the action in the book of Daniel all takes place in the neighborhood of Babylon. And it mentions a few other places, some of which I don't think we even know exactly where they are. Like in chapter 2, <coughs> chapter 3, that, that big image was built on the plain of Dura. The Bible dictionary said, that well, there are several Duras in that area. <laughs> so, so it's not on our map. Um, and then here's the outline, which um, sometimes I don't like these outlines, but I, I like this one. This one works quite well. And it's interesting about the book of Daniel. It's not the way you would normally, if you just read the book of Daniel through one time, you're going to immediately notice two parts. And where would you divide those two parts? Hint, it's not on the screen. Good <laughs> <laughs> question. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Half and a half. The first six chapters and the last six. What's the difference between those two? Prophecy. 
Right, the first six are stories. And the second six are prophecies, you know, visions and, and revelations. But you notice that's not how Zondervan here has divided up in their outline. And there is a very, very strong clue in the book itself, which we don't get because we read it in translation. If we were reading in the original, we would get it right off the bat. The language. The language, yeah. What is most of the Old Testament written in? Hebrew, that's right. And if you started reading Daniel, that'd be very familiar. If you knew Hebrew, you'd be reading Hebrew. But in chapter 2, verse 4, it says, Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. Well, okay. But the amazing thing is that Daniel starts writing in Aramaic at this point. This book is written in two different languages, which seems like that would kind of limit its um, readership. <laughs> every so often today, someone will write a, write a book in two languages. My guess is in Canada, every so often you'll have a, an English and French book. I know in South Africa they had a really popular song that was half in English and half in Afrikaans, which I couldn't speak Afrikaans, so it didn't mean anything to me, but people that could speak both languages saw it was a really funny song. So here you got a book in Hebrew and Aramaic. And, and just because you can speak one language doesn't mean you can speak the other. They were two languages. I mean, if you, if you or I were to look at, at, at it written down, it would look the same because they both used the same kind of letters, those funny Hebrew characters. But the words were all different. It was, it was two different languages. In fact, we, we had a time in our history when some people who normally spoke Aramaic were speaking Hebrew and somebody wanted them to speak in Aramaic. Do you remember when that was? Oh, that was the, the, the siege of, the, of Jerusalem. Yeah. Uh, and the Assyrian guys came to talk to Hezekiah's people about surrendering. And Hezekiah's people said, well, hey, speak in Aramaic. We know that language. Oh, no, we're going to speak in Hebrew because we want these people listening up on the wall to hear us. <laughs> they were doing psychological warfare. They were two different languages. And so here you have this book the first chapter and a few verses of the second chapter are all in Hebrew like you would expect. Then it starts Aramaic. When does it quit Aramaic? At the end of uh, 7. At the end of chapter 7. And that's why the outline here splits it at, at the end of chapter 7. Even though chapter 7 is the first of the vision chapters, it's still in Aramaic. And so clearly it was supposed to be part of the first half of the book. So that's where the outline comes in. You have the introduction, the setting, and they put that separately. That's in Hebrew. Then chapters 2 through 7 are, are in Aramaic. Aramaic was the world language. It was not the language of the Jews. So this is the destinies of the nations. That's what chapters 2 through 7 are about. Then in chapter 8 we go back to Hebrew for the rest of the book, and that's all about Israel. That's the destiny of Israel. And... The theme, of the, overall, uh, the theme of the whole book is really the kingdom of God versus the kingdoms of men. What book in the New, Te New Testament would, would have a theme very similar to that? Revelation. Book of Revelation. Very, very clearly, that's the theme. And this book is referred to very frequently in the book of Revelation. A number of things in the book of Revelation are based upon Daniel with the favorite being what chapter of Daniel? 
Chapter 7, yeah. Clearly, uh, chapter 7 is one referred to most often in Revelation. What other Old Testament books does does Revelation use a lot of? Ezekiel, the one we just finished, yeah. And there's another one we haven't got to yet. Zechariah, yeah. Yeah, the three weirdest books in the Old Testament are the ones that are referred to by the weirdest book in the New Testament. <laughs> All right, so this morning we're doing almost the whole book. As you can see here in red, we've got chapters one, one through nine. So we'll finish the first half, the part, the part that's addressed to the nations, and then we'll do two out of the three sections in the destiny of Israel. All right, so the outline, and I'm just going to follow through with. We'll just, I don't have any separate things. What you're seeing here is what I've already put on the board. Just the outline, one piece at a time. So chapter one is the setting of the book, and it tells us that it was this. You know, they were taken captive in the third year of Jehoiakim, and which is which. When I showed you the time chart, that was when this this captivity took place. And these guys were, were selected to do what? What was going to be their job? Serve the court. Yeah, they were going to be advisors to, to the king. They were, they were part of a group called the wise men. Um, and how long was their education going to last? Three years. Yeah, three years. Yeah, not a whole lot different from you know uh, what it would take to get a bachelor's degree today. Um, and probably the education would be along that line, the equivalent of that. Um, I mean, they were—they'd already had a decent education. I mean, they—they they were in fact from the royal family in Israel. I'm sure they knew how to read and write and, and numerous other things like that. But they're going to get the college part, and then they'll be ready to enter into the king's service. And and uh, the story, of course, is quite familiar. In fact, Marcia had us read this in her choice of scriptures last week for our Sunday night um, devotions. So it's even more familiar to those who were in that service. Um, they had a problem. What was the problem? Food. Yeah, food. Yeah, And, and it's not hard to figure out why the meat would be a problem because the, Jew, the, the, uh, the law of Moses limited the meat quite a bit to what Jews could eat. But what would be the problem with the wine? Yeah, we did. We have to guess. There was nothing in the law of Moses against drinking wine. Um, yeah, there, there was no limitation of what kind of wine or anything like that. Um, so the best guess would be that the the wine had been offered to Nebuchadnezzar's god as a dedication before they ate it. And and in what New Testament book deals somewhat with the same problem of of eating food that's been offered to an idol. Paul addresses the issue. Yeah. Yeah, it's in First Corinthians. That's right. And and Corinth was was in Gentile territory, so they would have had the same problem. So uh what food did Daniel want he and him and his friends to eat? Vegetables and herbs. Oh yeah. John's volunteering the other John here. Okay, go ahead. Vegetables and herbs. Yeah, yeah, and what would they drink? Water. Water, yeah, okay. Um, 
And I want you to notice verse 9. Now, God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. Major theme in the book of Daniel, God's in charge. And everything that happens, God's the one that's doing it. He granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander. Um, so he cares about them. He, he wants to help them out. But he's got a problem. And what's that? Well, yeah, he, he could he could be. I mean, it, you read the, this book and, you, and it seems like the only the only punishment at all for violating the king's command is always just you get killed. <laughs> no, nothing nothing less than killing. It's that's all there is. And I, I assume they had other punishments too. But um, this guy understands that if he offends the king, I mean, the king's the one that said, "Here's what they're to eat." Comes from my my royal table. And if he wasn't giving them that food, why would that be? What would be the most likely reason he's giving them the wrong food? Selling it. Yeah. He's just trying to steal the king's food and give them cheap stuff. And and so if they look skinny and, and you know they just haven't fattened up at all, then Nebuchadnezzar will know he's been doing it wrong. So the test, which I don't know how you can get a test in just 10 days of this, but they did a test for 10 days. And at the end of the days, they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So, John, the evidence that you're eating vegetables would be when you really start gaining weight. No, no, no. You, you gave it away because it's all under God's direction. In this case, in this exceptional case. It was under God's direction, that's right. And... Um, at the end of the, the chapter, they, they finished their three-year service and Nebuchadnezzar is happy with them that he found them better than anyone else. Their, their wisdom was, was superb. Um, but again, look in verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. So it's, it's again God doing it. Alright, so that's the introduction. So, we're being set up for a book about the conflict between the people of God and the and the empire of the, the of men, the world empire. And and with God's help, they've been able to pass their first test. So we start in this the major section, the destinies of the nations, chapters two through four, and the first section is Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, two through four. Although one of those chapters doesn't have a dream in it, but. They're all certainly related. Um, chapter two, of course, is the, is the most famous of these um, of the dreams. Um, on the internet, I found scads and scads of pictures, although the, most of them I couldn't use. But I finally found one I could um, for this this dream he has. Um, and as we mentioned earlier, they start talking Aramaic. This is this is the portion about the, what's going to happen to the kingdoms of men. Um, so he has a dream. In the King James Version, he says he's forgotten the dream. and In the other translations, he says he's just made a firm command. He's not going to tell people what the dream is. I think it could be translated probably either way. Um, but he's not very impressed with wise men that claim they can interpret dreams, but they can't tell you what the dream is when you don't tell them. <laughs> How would you like to have a king like that that you can't talk sense to the guy. Whatever he decides, that's the way it's going to be. And 
if he decides that all you wise men are going to have to be able to walk on water or else you get killed, that's what's going to happen. I mean, it's just, it just, wow. It was just... Um, and of course, a guy like that is not going to get any more humble as time goes on, given that every word he says, it happens. Um, people, have, you know, you get around him, you're going to be working in great fear. But it gave... It had, you know, it was a major introduction that gave Daniel the opportunity for God to reveal the truth to Nebuchadnezzar, and and I mean Nebuchadnezzar accepted it much better than if he told everyone the dream. And Daniel said, "Oh yeah, I know what that means." This this had this got his attention. Okay, so what was the dream? A great statue. A great statue. So here we got a statue. The reason I had so much trouble finding what I could use is. All the other statues on the internet have the names next to them of what they represent. And every single one of them that I could find, well, maybe with one exception, it was a really poor quality picture, every, all of them except one, had one extra empire. I mean, how many empires do you see here? Four. four. Yeah, I see four. They get five. <laughs> I'll show you when we get to it what, what the fifth one is, but what's the... The, the, what's the head made out of? Gold. And what does it represent? Nebuchadnezzar's empire. Yeah, you, you, Nebuchadnezzar, are, are the head of gold. Babylon was the first empire. What's the the arms and the belly made out of? Silver. And what's that represent? Medo-Persia. Yeah, that's the Medo-Persian empire. The um, thighs of um, the middle section is made out of. Bronze and that empire is oh, the Greek expansion under Alexander. Yeah, that's Greece under Alexander the Great. Then the legs are made out of what? Iron. Iron, and that represents Rome. Rome. And they get the extra one from the feet that are made out of iron mixed with clay. <laughs> and they count the ten toes, which are never even mentioned in here, but they count the ten toes, and those are ten the ten kingdoms of Europe that are, are coming up in the future. So they move the whole thing. And, and when Daniel says in the days of these kings, God will set up a, an empire that will never be destroyed, we see that as Jesus coming in the days of the Roman Empire. They see it as Jesus coming back in the future in the times of the toes, <laughs> which as I said, are not mentioned here. Now, in fairness to these people, I mean, I don't, I don't accept their theory, but in fairness to them, the same empire is represented in chapter 7. And how many horns does it have? So the number 10 is obviously designed to be connected with this fourth empire. Um, that, but they put a big gap in between. You know, there's a big gap from Rome till these are the, the feet. Um, though they see the feet as coming from Rome, but just a long time later. And, and I don't, I really don't object to gaps because I, I think there are a number of prophecies we can find in the Old Testament where you read along and it just suddenly jumps and, and the prophecy, the prophet isn't telling you he's jumping, but he, he very clearly is. Um, and I, I haven't figured out exactly how you know when to put in a gap or not. <laughs> well, but I, I don't see any evidence of it in this, in this chapter. But I will say, um, I mean... There's no question that Jesus established His empire 
in the, day, in the days of the Roman Empire. Nevertheless, when you study the book of Revelation, you realize that there is a yet fuller establishment to come that it wasn't all done just when Jesus died on the cross and sent the Holy Spirit uh, on the day of Pentecost. That there, there is a much fuller coming in of the kingdom uh, yet in the future as we read about in the, in the book of Revelation. Um, now, I mean, I don't go with all their fanciful theories about you know, how it's going to happen, etc., etc. But um, we're, in, we're in this strange period where the kingdom has, has been established, but it's not obvious to the world yet that this is an empire that fills the world and crushes all, all the other empires. We still have empires all around us, and yet in the book of, in, the, in Daniel chapter two, the stone cut out of hand, the mountain without hands struck the the image on the feet, and then it crunched the whole thing up to where it was just like dust. We we have not yet seen the full, final fulfillment of that. We have seen the stone, and it hit the feet in the days of the, of the Roman Empire, but. What we see today are still a lot of world, world empires, just like what you had back back then. And we're still waiting for the final crunching up of all of all these empires. Um, let me see if I've got anything else. That's about everything I wanted to bring up from chapter two. So we'll go back to chapter. The next one is chapter three. I don't. Oh, I do have a picture. No, I don't have a picture. I don't have a picture on three or four. I could have gotten pictures for for these others, but I'm I'm trying just to do pictures where I think it'll actually help us understand rather than just, you know, entertain. <laughs> chapter three is about another image, and some people think maybe it was inspired by the image of chapter two. I don't know if it was or not, but um, it was really big, and it was made out of what? Gold. Gold. Yeah. Never noticed they had a goal. He makes images out of gold, and and from what um, there, there's an ancient historian named Herodotus, and he lived many years after Nebuchadnezzar. But he wrote about this period, and he said they did have a number of very heavy uh, gold statues in the city of Babylon. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, I guess, could afford it because he was going ripping off the gold from every nation he conquered. Some of this gold might have even come out of the temple. I don't know. Um, I mean, the temple was... I don't know what the time frame, whether he, whether this is after the final captivity or whether this is in between. Um, but he, he had taken some gold even when, when he took Daniel. But the temple was still standing until 21 years later. But everybody had to bow down and worship this image. And of course, if you're um, an official... It's going to be the higher the official you are, the more obvious it's going to be you're not doing it. And Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, kind of stuck out. They got in trouble, but um, they have this famous speech in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. 
But even if He does not, let it be known to you, O King, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. That's not a speech designed to ingratiate yourself with the king. Oh, yeah. Verse 19, Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath and his facial expression was altered. <laughs> you can just imagine. I mean, we've all known people who had a lot of trouble controlling their temper. We've never known someone like that who had this much power. Just, he could do whatever he wanted. And he really wanted to punish these guys. You know, you don't talk to me like that. That was his attitude. So heat the furnace, how hot? Seven times hotter than normal. I don't know whether they had thermometers and actually calculated or whether they just put as much fuel as they could in there. But it was hot. So hot that what happened? The guards who going to throw these people in were destroyed. Yeah. In order for them to get close enough to throw them in, they, they died from the heat. Impressive again. And again, here they are serving a king who doesn't care. If his guards get killed by the, by the fire, that's just collateral damage. He wants these guys punished as seriously as he can punish them. And of course, you know, once they get in there, nothing happens to them except I guess maybe the rope burned off. But um, how many were in the furnace? <laughs> Started with three, ended up with four. Only three came out. <laughs> Who would the fourth one look like? Son of the gods. Son of the gods, yeah. So that this definitely got Nebuchadnezzar's attention. Um, so he makes a decree that um, nobody better speak anything against this god. Um, he doesn't want any bad things happening in his kingdom. This is not like any god he's ever known before. And he promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So, you have another round in this battle between God's kingdom and, and man's kingdom, and God again wins. Well, it gets even better as we go on to... Well, I can't go forward because chapter 4 is also on the same point here. Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. So in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. This time he didn't you know, say, you've got to tell me what the dream was. He told people what the dream was, but they couldn't figure it out. What was the dream? A huge tree. Huge tree. <clears throat> you can see it to the end of the whole earth. Um, and then this watcher said what? Chop it down. Chop but do something unusual about the stump. Bound with hoops. Yeah, bound with a band of iron and bronze around it. And then he starts. Then they start talking like this tree is a person. In verse sixteen, let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. Most people take that as seven years. Um, it doesn't say that, but I don't. I don't know what else it suggests instead of that. So, you know, Nebuchadnezzar asked Daniel to interpret it. And when Daniel realizes what it's about, what's his, what's his attitude? <laughs> yeah. 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 This is not his favorite job. Well, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar was, was nice. He didn't do what he could have done to Daniel. 
And Daniel was as tactful as he could, you know, saying, well, I wish the dream could be about your enemies, O king, because you're the, the tree. And, and in the end, he actually gives Nebuchadnezzar some advice <clears throat> that maybe he, this won't happen to him if he'll, if he'll take his advice. And what's the advice? Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially do what? Yeah, and you can imagine a guy in his situation doesn't care about poor people. I mean, all he cares about are people that that can help him out. Um, and you know, the more the more removed he gets from the common people, the less he's going to care about them. Um, so, and Daniel could see the the problem and, and made the suggestion to him. And I don't know whether he tried, but twelve months later. His time is up, and what what was his great statement that he made just before the the curtain came down on him? How great he was! Yeah, how great he was! Isn't this great Babylon? Um, verse thirty: Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? And what we've we've seen this added all, all along with this guy. And now he voices it, and a voice comes down from heaven. <laughs> um, oh boy! So um, seven times go past, and his hair grew like eagle's feathers, his nails like bird's claws, and he ate grass like cattle. I mean, he he was out of his mind. I mean, he he, he was insane for this period of time. Verse 34, But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. That's again the theme. That's the theme of the book, but especially of this first half of the book. Alright, now we leave Nebuchadnezzar and go to Belshazzar, a later king. He's called his son, but I think he's later than that, not an immediate son. Um, he's actually the last king of of the Babylonian Empire, and we join him on the last night of his life. Although he doesn't know that yet, uh, what kind of guy is he? He's a, a party animal. He's terrible. Yeah. Not only are they having a drunken feast, but what's he get? What's he asked to be brought in so they can drink out of? The, the vessels from the temple. Yeah, which he knew. That. I mean, he knew exactly what he was doing. I mean, he's just trying to make light of the Jews' religion. So in verse four, they drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. You know, ha ha ha! For this Jewish god, we're drinking out of his cup. He, would, I mean, this guy. I don't think he would dare do that out of one of the cups to, dedicated to his own god. And so now he gets the handwriting on the wall, <laughs> and. And boy, his attitude changes. In verse 6, his hip joints went slack and his knees began knocking together. <laughs> oh. So, um, the final the interpretation when Daniel finally comes in and tells him, you have these words, meany, meany, tikal, ufarsin, which um, a, a very rough translation in English would be something like, Penny, penny, nickel, and dime. They're, they're, they were amounts of money for in Persian, um, but they all, but each of them had a, a meaning as well. And he and and so meaning 
came from the Persian word which, or Aramaic for numbering, and so God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tikal had the idea of weighing, and so you've been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Perez means division. Your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and Persians, which Persian again sounds like Perez. And that night, the Medes and the Persians took over the city and they killed Belshazzar. Um, and so the next chapter is in the Persian Empire. And um, Daniel has been promoted almost to the top. Darius is over the whole thing. And then underneath him are three commissioners, and Daniel's one of those, but he, he likes Daniel's work so well he wants to make him the top. And the other two commissioners, plus some of the guys below that, are jealous, so they work out this trap. And it's quite an honor to Daniel because they recognize the only way they can trap him is to make it illegal for him to worship his God. That's the only law he's ever going to break is a law that conflicts with worshiping his God. So they come come up with that. And the king really, really does not want to throw Daniel in because, of course, Daniel's his best guy. Um, but they've trapped him. And, and in the, um, the Medo-Persian Empire, when you make a law, you can't go back on it. In fact, we already had that once. We've already done a history book that was in this period of time. What was that? Esther, yeah. And once that rule was made that you know everyone gets to pillage and plunder the Jews, he couldn't take it back, even though he was the top guy. And so Darius is having the same problem. This, this took place quite a bit earlier than Esther. Daniel was dead by the time Esther came along. Um, so they end up throwing him in the, de- in the lion's den. And then, of course, he, he, may, he lives through it. And then in verse um, uh, 26... I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and enduring forever, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. It seems like almost every chapter repeats this, this theme. That, that's, that's exactly the, the, the kingdom of God is going to be enduring uh, in contrast to the kingdoms of men. Now, this section it covers chapter 6 and 7 because... Um, in chapter 7, Daniel gets a vision which really is saying the same thing we've seen in all these chapters up to this point. The vision starts with the sea. And what comes out of the sea? Four beasts. Four beasts. Alright. And I found a nice picture of the four beasts. <laughs> the lion with the wings like an eagle represents what? Babylon. Yeah. See, four, we already had four with the statue. They're, they're the same four. The bear with the three ribs in its mouth represents? Medo Persian. Yeah. The leopard with four heads and four wings represents? Greece. Greece, yes. And the, the uh, beast so fierce you can't even describe it represents? Rome. Rome. And on its head it had? Ten horns, yes. And then one horn came up and uprooted three of the others. And I can't, I don't know what all those details mean. Uh, it's just, um, you, you, you can read different commentaries, you can get different ideas. Um, and part of the problem is that the word king in this chapter is used 
for kingdom. Um, and so the ten kings might be individual kings like Caesars in the Roman Empire, or they might be kingdoms that come out of the original kingdom. Both of them would be fair to the text, but they give you very different interpretations <laughs> depending on how you go with it. And I, I, don't, I don't have a very strongly held opinion on it. Um, but I will mention that the book of Revelation makes very heavy use of this chapter. So, I don't think that we can say, oh, this whole chapter was fulfilled by, uh, the, time, by the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Because the book of Revelation comes after that and it indicates that there's still things to there's still some things to be to come with this uh, vision. So there's no question that, that the beginning of the vision has certainly been fulfilled. Um, the Son of Man has gone to the ancient of days, and he has been presented with a kingdom, but still has a ways to go before that kingdom is going to be what it ought to be. Uh, and where it crushes all the kingdoms of the world. Um, let me see uh, important verses here. Uh, verse 14. To Him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And then verse 27. At the very end, then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. And at the end of verse 28, we quit doing Aramaic, and in verse 1, we're doing uh, Hebrew again. So we now go to. The second half of the book, chapters eight through twelve, not not quite as long as the first half, all about the destiny of Israel. The first one, chapter eight, being the vision of a ram and a goat, which I do have a picture to go with this. <laughs> you have the goat with a prominent horn between its eyes, traveling across without its feet touching the, the ground. What's it trying to tell us when it says its feet aren't touching the ground? Really fast. Really fast. Which and this represents Alexander the Great. He 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 moved very fast with his conquering. Um, and the ram with the two horns, one longer than the other one, although they're both long, represents what? Medo-Persian. The Medo-Persian Empire. We're not taking guesses here. When he gets it interpreted for him, he's told that's what it is. So. For extra credit, from what direction are we looking at this scene? Well, Alexander came from the west. That's right. So we're looking from the north. <laughs> and it specifically says in here that the goat came from the west. <laughs> Alright, so here is the Medo-Persian Empire. As you can see, I mean it's huge, even bigger than the, uh, the Babylonian. In fact, it, it goes off. I didn't even show you the whole thing. Um, Greece, you see, although they came up and took Macedonia, they were getting awfully close. They, ne they never could take Greece. They had a very famous battle of it they lost. Um, and it really made the Greeks mad. And so then when Alexander grew up, 
he decided to avenge. And so he's coming from the west attacking the Medo-Persian Empire. And he went all the way into India. On the way back, he died. So he was pretty young. And his kingdom, well, when the prominent horn was broken off, how many horns grew up in its place? Four. Four. And that's what happened. Four of his top four generals divided up the empire. And it looks, well, if you look at the colors, there's only three here. The one that's missing is Asia Minor. Originally, Asia Minor was done by a separate general. But the Seleucids, it was General Seleucus, uh, he expanded. He was originally given Syria and all the east. He, he went ahead and took the other guys. Down here was Ptolemy. He, he had Egypt. I don't remember the name of the guy that had Macedonia, but you have basically three. And in the rest of the book, we're only going to talk about two. Syria and Egypt, the, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. And, and we're introduced to a really bad guy called the Little Horn. And he he beats up on God's people. Does anyone know what his name was? Because this happened a long time ago, actually. Yeah. Antiochus. Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, he he decided to try to stamp out Judaism, and he put a stop to the sacrifice in the temple. He killed many Jews. It was just terrible, and so that's all being talked about. In, in this in this prophecy, you remember this is a section about God's people, the future of of Israel. And so th- this part, it, uh, although we see some of the world empire things going on, it's really about how uh, that relates to to Israel and God's people. Um, all right. Well, that guess that's all I needed to get out of that um, chapter. So. We'll finally go to chapter 9, Daniel's prayer and the 70 weeks. Um, and we're, at, we're into the reign... Well, these, these visions kind of go back and cover some of the same historical sections we've covered in the first six chapters because we're back to the first year of Darius. And what did he notice when he got to the first year of Darius? Well, the time was just about up. Yeah, he was familiar with the book of Jeremiah... Jeremiah had said it was going to be for 70 years. And of course, Daniel was, was with the very first ones that should be taken captive, and it's been 70 years. So what's he do? Praise to God. Praise to God. He fasts, he prays, he confesses <coughs> their sins. And he says in verse 17, So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, O God, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. Very important point here. He's praying that God would do something for God's sake. He's concerned about the honor of God, which of course the people hadn't been concerned about. That's how come they got in such trouble. In verse 19, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. For your own sake, O my God, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. And so... An angel comes to him and gives him an answer. And the answer is way more than what he was asking about. He was correct. The 70 years were at an end. It was time to go back. But now he's being, revealed, he's being shown that there's another 70 in the future of the people. 
Instead of 70 years, it's 70 weeks. However, it appears that the weeks are weeks of years. So it would be 77s of years. 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So, he divides this up um, in verse 25. From the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. He never says why he divides it into two. Seven plus 62. Um, some people suggest to me the first seven weeks, which is 49 years, is how long it took to actually rebuild the temple. Um, and, and I will mention, I, I, don't, I haven't seen anyone that's, that's been able to show to right down to a year that the, the, this prediction works. But it's certainly... In round numbers, it does take us up to the time of Christ if you, if you work these weeks as seven years. Um, and then it, again, it gets complicated with um, the Messiah. Well, the Messiah will be cut off. is not too difficult. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. <coughs> that implies if, if that's the destruction at A.D. 70... 40 years have gone by, so there's a gap in this. So, Like I said earlier, having gaps in these things is not unheard of in these prophecies, although you couldn't tell it from... You don't know the gaps there from what you read. Then in verse 27, He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week He will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. I cannot tell you what all those details mean. I mean, the big picture is there's a fixed period of time given to Israel before this wonderful fulfillment's going to come in that the Messiah will, will be brought in. But strangely enough, when the Messiah comes, it's not all over because you've got destruction and, and devastation until finally the one who's doing the destru- destruction gets destroyed. Um well, we're going to see that some of the same thing is going to continue in the rest of the book. Things that um, we can get the big picture, but the details are going to be a <laughs> big challenge. Any final questions or comments? Appreciate everyone's help. You don't have any overheads this morning, do you? Oh, okay.